You're listening to Reconite. I'm Chris. And I'm Ryan. And how do we Reconite, pal? Uh, well, we draw a theme from a hat. Uh, we take that theme. We listen to some records, try to find stuff that matches it. We talk about it, review it, and just kind of hang out. And how, how do we, uh, how can you get hold of us? So can you get hold of us? Oh, gosh, we've got every sort of social media. Uh, we're on Facebook at uh, Record Night. We're on Instagram at Record Night Pod. We have a Twitter that and I record underscore night. forget. Record underscore there night. Is. <laughs> and a, uh, you can just email us the regular way at recordnightpod at gmail.com. And we have a very, very special guest today, don't we? We sure do. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Jeffrey Lewis, uh, singer, songwriter, comic book artist extraordinaire, uh, to the podcast. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. We couldn't be through more thrilled you're on. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Um, great to be here. Uh, for you who doesn't know, I'm a, I'm a pretty giant fan of Jeff Lewis's work. We talked about his uh, most recent studio record, uh, Bad Ryan, on our third episode. So it's uh, really a thrill to have you on. Thank you. Um, and so apparently we are in three different time zones. Yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a, you're obviously Eastern because uh, if you guys know Jeff's from uh, New York City. By the way, how's everything over there? I know it's been crazy. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize how crazy it was with the recent storm until I saw some news reports the next day. It yeah. didn't seem that bad. Uh, it just seemed like rain and then, uh, you know, crazy footage of floods and things like yeah. that. But, um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know. I guess you're safe in the middle of America from yeah. these coastal disasters that Ryan and I are dealing with on the coast. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, middle America. It's uh, in- Yeah, it's been raining the past couple of days, but, you know, it's nothing like the what's going on over there and Ryan, compromise with the constant fear of tornadoes looming over them. Constantly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ryan, has, has it been rain, rain over there uh, in uh, San Diego? No, we just got fires over here. Yeah. Okay. The opposite. Right. Yeah. So, uh, our team today is desert Island records. Uh, we actually pulled this team a few, uh, episodes ago, but we saved it until this one. So team, it seemed like a, a good one to talk about with a guest. Yeah. Since we talk about our, our favorite albums constantly off of fun little tangents. Yeah. And there are like a million I could have chosen for this one too. Right. Always a good topic. I mean, we really need a uh, desert uh, archipelago, uh, <laughs> you know, like a, what, 20 different little islands and um, 20 different records to take to those 20 islands because boiling it down to one is sort of ridiculous. But, yeah. uh, but it's just an interesting conversation starter and it's interesting to hear what is important about records to other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, interesting relative to what, I don't know, but we, you know, <laughs> this is a, it's a record podcast. So if you're not interested in talking about records, listen to something else. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, uh, let's start with yours, Ryan. What did you bring today? Yeah. Well, the, the desert Island pick for really any sort of media is always one of those ones that I just, I can't stop thinking about because I want to go like, well, I'd pick my favorite album, but then it's like, well, do I, I don't know if I want to get, if I'd get tired of my favorite album, do I think about it? Like, you know, Oh, I pick my, yeah, my pick is how to survive on a desert Island, you know, series of talks or something like that. So I tried to kind of combine a little bit of like the practical approach with a, this, my album doesn't teach you how to survive on a desert Island. <laughs> um, but it, it is one of my favorite albums. It's, in my top three, I think, uh, which, you know, shuffles around a lot, but I went with gloss drop by battles. 
because of my favorite albums, it's the one that I feel like has the most island vibe. <laughs> they spend a lot of time trying to make the guitars kind of sound. They sound a lot like a steel drum to me, which you'll hear. We'll we'll get into when we start talking about it more. Um, but real quick, Battles are a experimental rock group from uh, New York City, mm-hmm. um, and they they're I. I'd count them as a super group, I guess, because the drummers, the drummer from like Helmet and Tomahawk, uh, one of the guitar players is from uh, Don Caballero. Um, and then I, on this one, they had a bass player, guitar player uh, who is from like a math rock band called Lynx. And then they all got together and made this kind of mashup of rock and electronic music but all the electronic stuff is played live which is interesting uh, I, mean, I was trying to figure out what instrument I was playing what during this whole thing yeah they kind of try to make the guitars not sound like guitars and make the keyboards not sound like keyboards but then most of like they build everything off of loops uh so all the loops are made from making guitar sound weird and then kind of like making a sound capturing the sound and then changing how it sounds and then jamming over it do you want to get to the sampler yeah, sure. So a uh, quick little uh, refresher. Yeah, well, Jeff, we uh, play a sampler of each record, just sort of like clips from the record before we actually talk about it. But uh, this is Battles Glostrop.
And there we go. That's the sample we're right put together for <laughs> gloss drop. So, yeah, I I feel like of what we all picked, mine kind of felt like a little bit of an outlier. So I'm curious as to uh, what you guys thought of it. Well, uh, Jeff, what did you think of this? Uh, I, I've heard it a little bit of it before, so then this is a bit newer for you, unless you have heard it. So, uh, I you know my I listened to it uh, like four times all the way through, having never heard battles before, uh, or at least not consciously being aware of having heard them before. Um, it's very much like the polar opposite of <laughs> what I would normally look for in music. Um, although I listen to, you know, certain stuff, I certainly listen to a fair amount of instrumental stuff or some stuff that might be a little, you know, somewhat sonically transgressive or, um, you know, but I, was mostly just sort of fascinated that music like this would find a place of such importance that it would be a desert island <laughs> pick for somebody mm-hmm. because I don't have a way in to this that reveals what, you know, and I'm going to be a total jerk on this podcast <laughs> in general, I should warn, because you know, I, I once saw this interview with Jonathan Richmond where he was like, mm-hmm. I never speak bad of any other musicians or any bands. And if anybody ever attributes a quote where I said anything bad about any band ever, it wasn't me because I never do that. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I, you know, I'm, uh, I, I just let fly with my jerky opinions. So I, I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's just not me and I can't find, it's just sort of impregnable to me in the sense of like, I'm looking for something mm-hmm. to appreciate and I'm trying to use various angles and imagination of uh, what I'm supposed to be hearing here. And I'm not coming up with much. I'm like, I would rather listen to, uh, I, you know, I get much more excited listening to like the music from uh, Mega Man 2 or something, you know, like, it, like there's, there's a hey, lot that's of got like, a good soundtrack. That's what I'm saying. There are a lot of Nintendo games that have really cool soundtracks mm-hmm. that I would put, you know, I'm filing this music in like music in um, music that could be video game soundtrack because it's very, it's very unpersonal. I, I don't hear any kind of, I don't hear anybody in this revealing their own vulnerabilities or their own philosophies. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing like, uh, you know, this kind of very display of what we can do with our equipment, but I, it's. My, my, the best thing that I could think of to think about it was that it makes me realize how much the music that I gravitate to forces out the listener by putting the creator's personality and thoughts and feelings so much in the center that there's no room for the listener's thoughts and feelings to enter the space. Mm-hmm. So music like this, my comprehension of it is like, oh, this is like – could be a welcoming space because it allows me to think and feel in a much more open-ended way because there isn't a personality in it the way that I normally encounter personality in music. And that's kind of where I'm coming at this from. Yeah, I've got a couple of things with that. Uh, Their music has been in uh, Little Big Planet video (laughs) game. Uh, So there is definitely some uh, credence to it sounds like video game music. Um, I think a lot of the personality does come from the instrumental part of it. Like if you 
uh, if you're familiar with like uh, Don Caballero's music and stuff like that, and his the, that's the original bit, the guitar players from his approach to music and that, which is another instrumental band, very much his personality and his guitar playing comes through in this quite a bit. Uh, you can hear a lot of like the older band, how they approach music and their philosophy and stuff. But yeah, they don't, they don't typically do a lot of um, lyrics and stuff like that. I think they tried before, but they all kind of decided at one point, like we don't like singing. It's not really our strong suit. So we'd rather focus on how we can develop, basically take the equipment and translate what we're hearing and push it forward in a way that's interesting to us, like kind of, merging the performance part with the electronic parts. They're not just like, you know, you get the um, uh, trope or the idea that some electronic music, you just kind of press play and then you stand up on there and slide a couple sliders, but they play electronic music like as an actual performance and they do stuff like that. So they're not just pressing play and then, oh, press play here and then we'll press play here. So um, when I got when I was listening to this and uh, I whenever you, you know I was talking, I always try to feel like things of what I can't appreciate about it, right. So I do mm-hmm. appreciate the bonkersness of this record. That's it's glitchy. It's got it, it keeps you on your toes, I guess. When I would put it, but um, again, uh, I was trying to think of well, what's the genre I called? Me, I call it prog pop, you know, because I, I don't know about that. And uh, but uh, to me, um. Like like Jeff was saying, I, this is a hard entry point for me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like um, like uh, I, I I don't think I could tell you what any of the songs were without except like you know having the you know ice cream, which is um, <laughs> if I had to pick a favorite song on the record, it's definitely that one. But um, I you know you showed me battles before, and I, I I've in it's this one this specifically have a hard time getting into, like just just entering it in the first place. Um, but uh, why did you pick as a desire on record? Uh, I mean, it does. It is up there in some of my favorite albums. But I feel like it kind of the a lot of the sounds that they picked for uh, the guitars and the keyboards and stuff have a you know like a steel drum sound or like a lot of like kind of island instruments mm-hmm. and a lot of it does trend towards more of the like kind of like happy and dancey sounds. Cause I'm for sure dying on this desert island. Like I, <laughs> I have no survival skills. So it's like, I'll, I'd rather have my, you know, last few weeks of life be, uh, be happy and kind of it. This, this is one of my like summer albums. I, I very much mood listen to music. So mm-hmm. once summer hits or it's a nice day, it's like, this is, you know, it's kind of like a cruising album. <laughs> we have another, at least another, uh, you know, a couple of weeks of summer left. Yeah, know. I know. In San Diego, it's constantly summer. So, <laughs> but yeah, that was that was a uh, battles. Um, gloss drop. If you guys want to hear that's on Spotify. Uh, as we can, uh, I mean, uh, do you have anything else to say about it, Jeff? Oh well, you know, this whole exercise in you know, like my my tendency, and also and probably a lot of us who like to talk about music. Is like we act as though we're talking from some objective way. You know, I feel like such a jerk when I'm like, let me explain to you objectively why your favorite album shouldn't be your favorite album. And, you know, it's just such a fruitless, jerky exercise. And I really have to curb my tendency to just like scientifically explain why, you know, because these things are so subjective. Sure. And I'm, 
really like, see, the other thing that struck me was like, this is my brother, Jack told me that battles like according to him, it's a math rock band. Yeah. Right. See, that's, but, that is kind of the label that's been thrown at him, which is how I originally tried to get into him. But I cannot, I cannot pick up on any sort of. Yeah. That's what I, it there. seemed like the beat. I didn't hear any, nothing struck me as like tricky in a sense of time signatures. I mean, not that I would necessarily hear that stuff, but it seemed like a lot of it was, but you know, I don't know, whatever. Not that that would have, that maybe would have alienated me even more. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, I guess it's just most fascinating and exciting to me the fact that there's an entry point here that for somebody and they're very very popular. You know, they they have fans. This band, like I've heard of this band. Like I I know mm-hmm. that um, there is a realm of people that um, are very excited about this and would you know love to see them play live. And um, your excitement about it is like. Uh, you know, somebody eating a food that is like delicious to them. And I'm like, I need to just adjust. My cultural palate is like, not that, you know, I'm coming from such a different place that it's just so fascinating that something could be so nutritious and enriching for somebody. It has something there that isn't hitting my synapses because I'm don't, I don't have the brain of somebody else. And it just shows me that somebody else is coming at it from different. I don't know what it is. Different, different needs, different palate, different experiences. Mm-hmm where they're all of the emotions that I feel about the music. That's really exciting and affecting to me. Those things are all lighting up for somebody else that's listening to this. And it just is so interesting to me how our brains, the patterns of our brains lighting up are, you know, responding to different things. I am curious this one, how much of it. um, I mean, obviously I enjoy it and I can enjoy it free of context, but I, this band is impossible to talk about. Uh, with anybody without, you know, mentioning the previous bands, you know, oh, if you know Don Caballero, yeah. oh, if you know Helmet, oh, if you know this band, which I think does help contextualize it, but it does kind of, you know, trace the, you know, things formed in your brain that I, you know, it's like, oh, I can hear all of these different things that then kind of coalesce into this one thing where everybody's getting equal space and everybody's, uh, you know, really expressing themselves, uh, in their, in their own ways that works really well together. So I mean, Even you, knowing that background, it does make it more interesting for me just because like, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't know those bands. I just know of Tomahawk as having some relation to Mike Patton stuff, which I do have, uh, you know, more of a fandom and interest in. And um, so, okay. So these are like mature musicians. These aren't a bunch of 20 year old hipsters who are like, <laughs> off their, their, you know, they didn't just graduate music school and they're showing off their chops. These are people that are, specifically coming at this as an artistic project because they have other projects, they have a lot of skill and they're figuring out what they do in collaboration with each other. And that, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that strikes me as something very interesting. Yeah. I, I recently, they, for like two albums ago, they made like a me making of documentary where they kind of like talked about the process. I've seen them live and them kind of building these loops and stuff like that. And even just then the, the that performance aspect of it, and kind of, I guess, knowing how the sausage is made kind of thing uh, is really interesting and fascinating. And it's, I'm maybe like, more fast, maybe more fascinating than the sausage. I was, <laughs> at, least from, at least for my taste, but this is a sausage that tastes great to you and is like something alien to my palate. So right. it's, um, it's an education for me. 
which for me, the desert, you, 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 you keep mentioning like what might be practical to hear on a desert island. Um, you know, the desert island thought experiment of like our, what albums would you want to hear as, um, you know, just as like a thought experiment. Uh, I always think like a classical record, cause I don't know anything about classical music. In fact, I'd probably be better off taking a battles album to a desert island because it would grow on me and I would learn mm-hmm. so many subtle elements of it that are initially alien to me that it would be a much richer experience if I had to listen to this, you know, on repeat, uh, while stuck on an Island or it's like a classical music or opera or, you know, things that I'm, that are so alien to me that I don't know a way in that probably would be the best thing for me to have on a desert Island. Cause it would just be a constantly more enriching experience as I learn my way into it. Right. That, that is a good point. Um, Ryan, were you aware of all the bands before getting in battles? Like you mentioned Don Cab and, um, and Tomahawk, you can do about those bands for you. So listening to battles, you just go into it. Yeah, because uh, battles started coming out uh, after I'd already gotten into a lot of that music. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is this is also. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of the stuff in this. I the more interesting parts, I think, are pretty contextual. This was right after they just lost that one of their members that was their vocalist. So they. Uh, compromised by doing like a bunch of like guest vocalists, um, which all actually, I think they all worked out pretty well. Um, my favorite being on the final track, Sundome. Uh, they have this uh, Japanese musician, Yamantaka Ai, who was from the band. Sounds Bordoms, like just gibberish when he was, uh... which it is. Uh, they initially <laughs> okay. thought it was, uh, they initially thought it was Japanese, but then he was just kind of improvising, making stuff up. Um, but yeah, his band Boredoms is another one that uh, they might they might seem a little alien and interesting, but they've like basically made a psych psychedelic thing. I I don't want to say yeah, rock, my, but they made like a drum circle into a band. It's, yeah, my, uh, my my old drummer is a big Boredoms fan, and he yeah. really loved that stuff. <laughs> I, I will say also before we move on, and maybe this is even a good. I don't know how long you want to spend on each record. This oh, is your, it's but, a, it's but, a, it's open ended. So, but yeah. I realize that this this next comment uh, is maybe a good transition mm-hmm. if we're ready to, or we can come back or whatever. Yeah. But it is a total mind blower to me to when after people are just listening to this as a as an audio podcast yeah. and not seeing the visual. But I'm seeing you guys on the you know as we're having this discussion, mm-hmm. our, our, all of our faces are on the screen to be seen, and it just really flipped the script for me that like seeing you guys for the first time, Ryan, who picked the battles album, it has big, you know, you've got like hair out, you know, you've got like a big kind of Dylan full head of hair, mustache, beard. Um, and you know, meanwhile, Chris is close cropped hair, fully shaved and, and has all this gear, you know, Chris has the nice headphones and microphones. Chris is like the professional gear guy. And I was 100%, it just was totally obvious that Battles was Chris's pick <laughs> and Dylan was Ryan's pick. And then when we started the conversation, I was like, wait, what? Battles is Ryan's pick? The, the bearded, uh, you know, Dylan-looking guy? And, you know, Dylan was Chris's pick? That that really flipped the script on me. That was like, a, he pulled the rug out under me with that one. So people that are not seeing what we look like, be aware that that's part of this conversation for me. That was interesting. So, uh, yeah, I uh, actually just shaved. I don't shave, like, for months at a time, I'm going to shave. And then my wife is like, you need to shave. So I did it. Um, not for the podcast, just because it was getting uh, pretty scraggly. And my hair is just 
it's just, you know, thin as it is, it can be on top. So I keep it close drop just just because uh, my wife, you know, she likes to look her certain way. So I, I try to help her out as much on that one. Um, one thing I do want to mention on this record, Ryan, is that, uh, you know, we both, uh, both Jeff and I picked movies, records that were very work, right? Like they have words. Mm-hmm. Um, the words on this record for the few songs that had vocals, they seem more like a uh, like an instrument than they would be actually a wor- as a language device. Yeah, and I think that was part of the uh, transition to not having the vocalist. Because if you go back and listen to their album before this, mirrored the way their vocalist would do things is it was a he also played guitar, so there were multiple guitars going on. But he would approach it similar to how they approach the guitar and sounds and stuff on here, where it's like it was really affected. Um, you know, put in a different range, very percussive and processed and stuff. So it was used more as uh, an instrument than it was a a vehicle for lyrics. Okay, and that's which may, maybe this is this is how I'm I'm approaching it. Is when I'm listening to music, I tend to listen in like layers. Uh, you know, figure out what each individual instrument is doing. But for whatever reason, I cannot pay attention to lyrics. I can hear, you know, melodies and the the rhythm and stuff that people are singing. But if I don't have the lyrics in front of me at all times, I have a really hard time paying attention to them, which is why I tend to gravitate more towards mostly instrumental music. That's, that's interesting. I'm the exact opposite when it comes mm-hmm. to that. So, uh I mean, even for listening. Yeah, I'm kind of, da- I'm kind of like down in the weeds, listening to like, oh, look at that cool thing the, you know, the drummer's doing, or how it's, you know, playing off of what a guitar's doing or what a bass is doing, uh, where the the lyrics and stuff are kind of the extra flavoring on top. It's the it's the salt to the dish. Uh, Jeff, what did you bring today? Um, a record called uh, "Illusions of the Maintenance Man" by a band called Virgin Insanity. Um, this was a record that was pressed in a very small quantity. Maybe only 200 copies were made initially in um, 1971 is the date that I've seen attributed to this album. And Virgin Insanity is that they were a band in Texas and they're part of, uh, they're, they're sort of one of the more famous examples among like a certain circle of record collectors that are, trying to find the special gems in what's called private press records, records that weren't on record labels, where at a certain point, um, I guess going back, you know, even probably 40s, 50s, and 60s, but especially as the technology of recording and pressing records became ever more accessible, there's a huge wave of people making their own records, and sometimes Mm -hmm. on very low budgets, and sometimes in very small quantities. Um, and of the thousands and thousands and thousands of these sort of homemade records that were made um, as the 60s turned into the 70s and beyond, record collectors and just curious people picking up things in thrift stores and going through piles and piles of records over the 70s and 80s and 90s, certain albums started to be sort of talked about in word of mouth among like these really deep crate diggers who are looking in the most undiscovered corners of record collecting, sifting through God only knows how many hours of completely mediocre, uninteresting <laughs> Salvation Army bands and, you know, homemade, uh, 
you know, albums of cover songs and whatever, you know, very mediocre and uninteresting records by the hundreds of thousands until once in a while something would strike them like there is something really odd and interesting about this record that I found somewhere. And we don't know anything about this record. We don't, and it starts to circulate among these people that like just have their nose to the, the, the ground to find, you know, find sniffing out the unusual gems. And as that, Circ small circle of people and collectors who trade these records, you know, grew, I, I was always like a, from teenage years, I was really interested in weird psychedelic stuff. I, uh, starting off just listening to the Grateful Dead and the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, you know, as sort of standard classic rock, I soon realized that the songs that really got me excited and like evocative for me were the more psychedelic ones like, Oh, the mm-hmm. Rolling Stones, uh, you know, 2000 light years from home has all these weird sounds in it. Or like the early pink Floyd stuff is more interesting than the later stuff to me. I and, completely agree with you that. Know, one. Things like that. So I, I, but I just still didn't realize that there was weird psychedelic music that you couldn't hear on classic rock radio. <laughs> I just loved it when they would occasionally play the weirder stuff on the radio. And then as I started buying the actual records by the who and by, you know, all, all these famous bands, I started realizing like, Oh, on these records, there's songs that don't get played on the radio that are actually, some of them are really psychedelic and weird and like cool. And then I started to discover slowly, my God, there's a whole world of bands that was never even on the radio that have like totally amazing, weird songs and albums and approaches to making music that like I've never even heard of. So that was like, you know, the incredible string band and um, the golden Dawn and 13 floor elevators and all this stuff that like now is pretty well known. Mm -hmm. But when I was a teenager in the nineties, that was like, that seemed to me like really obscure crate digging. Like, and Mm -hmm. then, you know, you just go through depths of just being an addict when you're just like a a junkie looking for that high of like (laughs) finding something else that blows your mind. You just go deeper and deeper into find, you know, craving to hear weirder and more special sounds. And at a certain point, um, a woman that I was dating, around 2007, 2008, she was like, oh, you got to meet my record collector friend in Texas. He's got some records that are worth thousands of dollars, and he's friends with these other people that collect really rare, really weird records. And I had never heard of that really <laughs> deep inner core. This, like, this was like suddenly like digging deep down in the mine, and then the mine shaft floor just falls out under me, and I'm like <laughs> 20 levels deeper into this much more hardcore world of people who are swapping copies of records that sell for thousands of dollars because there's like only a few copies known to exist. And the rarity of them is compounded by the, ex- the rarity of the experience of listening to these records. And Version Insanity, what he made me a small, this guy, Jason Cronus, who was this record collector, he was in a band called Boxtrot, and he made me a few CDRs of some of the records that he thought were the most special ones in his collection. And Version Insanity was one of those. And it didn't strike me on a first listen, because it's not overtly psychedelic. There's right. no back, you know, you know, there's nothing trippy about it. It's, it's like a Christian, they're sort of religious in a certain way, though not, they don't talk that openly about it. And they're essentially a folk rock trio. Um, and, but there is something so odd about the effect that this record has on me that is not like any record I've ever experienced. And mm-hmm. it's so subtle and hard to wrap my head around that I can almost only equate it to a fragrance. And I feel like this record, 
is like opening a jar that and smelling something that you can't put your finger that's it, the, the slight hint of something very unusual and rich and special and i don't i can't even listen to this record more than once every couple of years cuz i don't want that to escape and be lost this record <laughs> is already less certain songs on this record that used to just tear me open the scent has already kind of dissipated at this point there's just a couple of songs on this record that still just shred me and annihilate me and just leave me like a a shaking crying heap where i can't i don't even understand what's happening to me mm-hmm. so therefore to preserve that experience i keep this record sealed in a jar and i only take it out and listen to it when it's like okay it's been like 3 years let me just sit down and give myself the sort of trance like experience of listening to this album so it is almost the opposite of a desert island record if i was on a desert island i would not listen to this record i don't listen to this record it is just a record that is special to me mm-hmm. at the very top of a small list of records that are so special to me that I can't even listen to them. So that makes sense. I did make a sample for this. Would it be okay to, to sure. play? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. So this is originally saying he's illusions of a maintenance man. Don't get down. Don't get down. Keep your hopes up off of the ground.
All right, that's uh, that's um, Virgin Insanities. Who's the maintenance man? You right, Jeff? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad that can still do it to me. Um, that's, uh, so it's, uh, one, it just it fucks me up. <laughs> I don't know why. That's, um, I know it just no, that's, sounds ridiculous. No, no, it's I'm not. So that, glad that and, I'm so scared of the day when it stops having that effect on me. Oh no! But I'm glad that it does and did, and uh, I will forever be seeking other experiences that are that um, powerful to me. And, uh, you know, it's not, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't expect that those things affect other, but I know that there are other people who are affected by this record because it is considered to be, you know, one of the kind of cream of the crop of these weird records. There's other records out there that are not, you, you know that that have similarly mm-hmm. unique, very weird, creepy <laughs> uh, effects. So uh, one of the things I wanted to mention yeah, was I, I think you're onto something about this kind of something about it that you can't quite put your finger on because, like, I was completely enthralled with this when yeah. I was listening to it. It's not. It's typically not something that like I mean I like older psychedelic stuff, but like this on like face value does not seem like something I would be into or something that I would like. And then I got through, uh, don't get down. And then to be my friend, I was like, I'm in like, I, I absolutely love this. Yeah. This took me about a couple of listens, but one of the things that I noticed about it right away was the, um, infectious sincerity of it. All of it seems sincere. None of it seems, um, manufactured in a way that would, it's just something that it seemed just so, like I, I can't put it in words, but sincere, you know, like, uh, like the, this is something that's coming from the heart of these three people, and it, mm-hmm. it was infectious. Like I, by the second listen, I'm like, the first listen really gets with the second one. The second listen as well, I was really like, this is, this is incredible stuff. It's it's really interesting and great for me to hear that I'm not just so crazy in thinking that there's something special about this record. Yeah that people just coming at it fresh from a, from a couple different perspectives like you guys would pick up on the fact that there's something going on here. That's really hard to compare to other things in uh, or, you know, it's, it's just ineffable. And some of that is like sincerity in and of itself. I really gravitate towards, mm-hmm. of course. Like uh, I was but, thinking Daniel Johnston, even of course, yeah. of course. Um, but I've realized over the years that sincerity in and of itself, while very powerful, is like amplified by tremendous magnitudes when what the person is sincere about mm-hmm. seems colossal to them. Like It's like they're not just telling you what they feel in an unguarded and sincere way, but the th- what they feel their feelings about is something – very deep and large and like uh so sincerity coming from a person whose beliefs are perhaps like i don't know odd or large in some way like their hearts are just large it's not just that they're exposing their hearts but they for some reason have hearts that are large about something yeah Mm -hmm. whether it's something that i share or not and maybe even more interesting when it's something that i don't share and of course, Daniel Johnson being a fantastic example and certain other examples, um, 
there's, there's, you know, other examples in like the Simon Finn record is a bit like that to me. There's other records that have that. But one thing that strikes me about Virgin Insanity and, and just the way that you guys were just talking was I never thought about that in relation to the fact that this is three people on this record. And that's part of what is so fucking creepy <laughs> about this. This is not just one person. It's almost like a cult. It's like this is three people who feel very deeply and sincerely together about something. And that almost feels like these people could murder you if they, they are like a cult. They are like, they are very bound together in their sincerity of belief. And um, it just seems like they would just, if they needed to get from point A to point B and you were standing in the way, they would just chop you right in half on the way to get there. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, I, I did, uh, you know, I went to the far reaches of the internet to find out what I could about Virgin Sandy. And I got that they're from Texas, Dallas, Texas, which I'm, I grew up in Texas. Um, in Kansas City, hmm. but I grew up in Texas for the first, you know, until I was probably a uh, 29 or 27 is when I moved to, to KC with my wife. And, um, and so, you know, for example, they were talking about Rivertown. <laughs> when I was listening to Rivertown, I pictured all the places I used to drive through when I lived in Texas, uh, you know, uh, through that thing. So uh, it had a real effect on me of that, just thinking about, like, you know, uh, border towns or even that. Like, Rivertown really, I've seen those places they talk about, you know, in that song. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, part of, uh, it, you know, it's like you said, it's only 200 200 pressings, and I heard that every copy is unique because they stamped it in different places using a rubber stamp, which to me, like, I, I'm surprised that it's not as easy to, it's not that easy to find at all. Because, like, I've, I've found it a few places, a few torrent sites have a, from Russia have a Virgin Sandy, and there's a few songs on YouTube. But uh, this is something so special, and I can't believe it's not, more people cannot hear it. You know what I mean? Um, it's a, uh, all the songs on here did something to me, and I can't explain what it is. It, but uh, I mean, I'll be, I'll be visiting it. But uh, but like you said, it's it can it it can destroy you. It, like just just the feeling it gave me was a uh, was something special. Yeah, there's one one specific song in here that I really want to, uh, I guess shout out, which was uh, "Touch the Sky." Is I listen to a lot of like drone and like minimalist music this and ambient music kind of like a almost like a zone out kind of thing uh where when i when i listen to a lot of it i i'm trying to get into that almost like deep reflective state kind of like a uh i don't know i do a lot of my best thinking like in the shower or something like that where it's like somehow being in that space lets me you know make the connections and reflect and think through ideas in a more uh real way um and i feel like touch the sky somehow in there put me into that state when i was just sitting at my desk listening to it and it's like i it's been a really long time since i've had anything outside of just you know being in the shower or something like that that's put me into that kind of thinking mood like really thinking stuff through and all that i i don't know how they captured that in a song that doesn't i, I guess like sound like a a drone track or a, a just a shower running. And even then, like the recording is pretty rough, but uh, I I heard the crystal clear sort of studio version in my head while listening to it. You know what I mean? Like like I heard like uh, 
and a lot of people think like a, a studio is a laboratory. So maybe this having this uh, home recorded feel even added to it, you know, like sort of like they wanted to just capture this and do it any way I can. But there, there are songs like, uh, oh, sorry, I'm pulling my notes real quick. Like uh, for a while, I heard the studio version in my head right away. Like what it sounded, but even though it was recorded on, you know, which sounds like, you know, like a, a four track, maybe I, I heard it like it was, you know, right next to me. That's how it felt to me, you know? And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I talk about it's the, how they make me feel. And this one gave me a feeling I can't understand. Yeah. It's very, what the things that you guys are talking about with those two different songs, um, and maybe almost in slightly different way, because each of the songs on this record is pretty unique. It's almost like they enter a different zone on each song, which I also yeah. really appreciate a lot. Um, it's all, like, I, I don't know if cinematic is the right word, but it's very enveloping. Like mm-hmm. each, each world, each sort of like space that they're creating emotionally with each song, even doing it, I, I mean, maybe they were, maybe it was just recorded in their living room. Maybe it was just recorded on one microphone. I, I don't know exactly i'm you know there might have been overdubs involved or not or there might have been multi-tracks involved or not on but that lo-fi homemade sound of it where you kind of hear the room in it in a way that you don't get with studio recordings Mm -hmm. is like part of the spaciousness like you 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 hear the sounds bleeding into each other because it's they're all just kind of happening in this room at least it sounds that way Um, and I think that's that is transportive in a way that a lot of studio recordings deliberately are eliminated. Like a lot yeah. of studio recordings are things are close mic'd and things are separated and things are really focused on eliminating that room, that mm-hmm. that moment in time and that sp- eliminating the time and place of the recording so, to just get the signal of the sound itself so that you can have full artistic control over how to compose your sound and your cinematic album. And when somebody makes a recording that doesn't have, where you're, it's just kind of like in a room, there's, it's a different kind of immersive experience than what you would get otherwise. And also the fact that their voices, like everything is like a little out of tune. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more, like I'm not somebody who knows more about pitch would know exactly how to pinpoint that. But there's something about the singing and the harmonizing um, where they're obviously like a little off. Like there's something – it's not in tune in a way that a professional band would be. But they're, very, they're still very ambitious. Like the songs are very melodic. The guitar parts are – you know, there's interesting chords. There's like bossa nova chords and um, they're doing interesting harmonies. So they have these kind of like – musical ambitions that are not as basic as their actual skills are a little more basic than what would be needed to pull that off maybe. Mm-hmm. And there's something like, there's something of that sincerity in that as well. Like their belief in their project and the sophistication of their project compared to the sort of out of tune and lo-fi home recorded nature of it is also powerful to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really get the sense with the recording that it was recorded in the same room that it was written, um, which I think like they're writing it with a certain room ambience, and then they're recording it in that same space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It feels really 
intimate and close. Yeah, I got the intimacy. Like you are for just sure. kind of hanging out with your three friends who want to show off their their new band. Yeah, when uh, when I too, I thought I thought that added to the sincerity of honestly, like like you know, even it was a little bit out of tune. That was part of it again, just part of the feeling it gave me. You know, it, it's it was the, I don't know how they captured something like that, but they did, and it's um I couldn't be. I'm so thankful you shared this with us. Thanks. I also kind of deliberately wanted to find a record that can't current that that isn't findable on Spotify. Yeah. Because I, there's there's something in the intimacy of what they created with this record. Mm-hmm. There's also something intimate about the knowledge that only a few people have ever entered that space. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there was a certain point in history when you know probably less than a hundred people for decades, maybe less than a hundred people had ever heard this record. Um, and then, you know, once it became possible to actually burn a copy onto a CDR, once it became possible for people to share these files around now, I don't know. I don't know how many people are, are aware of this record. We're probably there's probably, you know, thousands of people that are aware of this record, but it still hasn't crossed over into the realm where, uh, probably I would imagine maybe nobody knows where the master tapes are. I don't know if the master tapes exist. Um, the al- the version that I have that I sent to you guys mm-hmm. was literally the CDR that was ripped from the original vinyl from my friend in Texas who has a copy of the of the record. Um, and at a point where so many things, even very obscure things, have been reissued and cleaned up and or even not cleaned up, but just available on Spotify, available in any kind of modern accessible formats, it opens the door to a lot of people coming in to join the party, and you're you're sort of you're sharing that psychic space with a lot more people. And there's something special about the intimacy of the fact that like you're almost part of a select group of people who have ever even entered this room. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. That's a really cool feeling. Uh, so thank thank you for sharing that with us. Um, but uh, let's move on to the uh, big sexy record that uh, we talked about. <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, Dylan's blonde on blonde. Uh, have, if you haven't heard Bob Dylan, that's crazy because he's Nobel laureate of U.S. He's in, um, I didn't really get into Bob Dylan until I was probably nineteen. Um, I well, the first record I bought by Dylan was actually a live record from nineteen sixty two. It was a double live record, and, and that's a that I remember. I listened to that and I immediately got on my guitar and tried to figure out every song he was playing on it because I, I was enthralled by every single song. That don't play in that, and as I got more into his discography, you know, I got into his uh, rock stuff, and uh, I'm not a big fan of his 80s stuff and 90s stuff, but late 90s, you know, Time Out of Mind, Love and Theft, the newer stuff I, I really enjoy. Uh, but the one that I paid for my Desert Island record is um, Dylan's Blonde on Bond, is I guess his third of the rock trilogy he did in the 60s. Um, we'll get more into it, but I want to go ahead and get this uh, sample over with so we can get deep into this Dylan-ness. But I would not feel so all alone Everybody must get stoned I'm pledging my time To you Hoping you'll come through too Ain't it just like the night to play Tricks when you're trying to be so quiet We'll sit here Oh, sooner or later One of us must know That you just did what you're supposed to do 
sampler of Dylan's Blonde on Bond. Uh, now, if I remember correctly, Jeff, this isn't your favorite of Dylan's 60s records, is it? No, I'm uh, going to get into Jeffrey Jerk mode again <laughs> and try to explain why somebody else, explain an objective scientific terms why somebody else's opinion of uh, what they like is actually incorrect. Okay. Uh, <laughs> which is like a horrible, jerky thing to do. But in my brain, you know, I, there's there's two 60s Dylan records that I just don't think that highly of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I absolutely adore that entire 60s discography back to front, and there's other records through Dylan's career that I, I'm very fond of, although I'm not a complete. There's a lot, a lot of his records that I've never heard. Yeah. But I'm very familiar with the whole 60s run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, Times They Are Changing and Blonde on Blonde are the two that are just pretty unappealing to me mm-hmm. uh, in that in that block of incredible records of the sixties. And there's various reasons for that. And I could, uh, at least from my, you know, if you're in the Jeffrey, if you're in the brain of Jeffrey Lewis, I've, I've, I've tried to figure out what it is that doesn't excite me as much about those two records. Um, and of course, when gearing up for having this conversation with you guys, I did listen to blonde on blonde a number of times this week, um, both in uh, digital format. And also I went and, uh, grabbed my old uh, double vinyl actual version, which I remember because I hadn't, because I hadn't, you know, I gave this to my mom as a, I remember my mom saying that this had been her favorite Dylan album 
in the 60s. So I think I gave this to my mom as a Christmas present when I was a teenager or something. It was like seven bucks. As all, <laughs> you know, all these records were so dirt cheap in the 90s. Like yeah. my immersion into classic rock in the 90s was just when all these records on vinyl were so cheap. Uh, visual aid here, which uh, people on the audio podcast are not going to see this original <laughs> vinyl version of uh, Blonde on Blonde double album for seven bucks. But um, so I went over to my parents' place and I borrowed this vinyl back. I was like, Mom, can I borrow that Dylan record? Because I don't have a copy of that one at home. So, I mean, I have it digitally, but it was yeah. I just figured I yeah. should also revisit it. Because I think there's something that happens when you're listening to four sides of a vinyl that yeah. breaks up oh, the experience mm-hmm. oh, in yeah. a very different way. Like, I didn't really love Captain Beefheart's Trout Mask Replica record until I had it on vinyl as four sides. Yeah. And that record as one long weird spew <laughs> coming from my laptop is a very different experience than that record as four discrete sides of like condensed experiences. So anyway, that's, um, you know, revisiting this, uh, I guess, you know, this album sound, there's something about the creative flame that's going on in the, the, uh, you know, highway 61 revisited and bringing it all back home. That just seems absent to me here. Like, this to me is the moment where Dylan goes from pushing the envelope from one record to the next, to the next, to the next. This is kind of like the buck stops here in terms of him being boldly in terms of him dragging the culture to someplace that it wasn't previously uh, from his first album. And I think that's an amazing story that you just told that your first introduction to Dylan mm-hmm. was the live recordings from 62. Yeah. Cause you really, st- almost nobody has that experience of starting from the beginning mm-hmm. and then finding the later stuff. Almost everybody, of course, hears the most famous stuff and then maybe goes back and discovers the early stuff. Yeah. But from the very beginning, even Dylan's first record, where he's not even a songwriter yet, he's just doing you know, mostly folk and blues songs and mm-hmm. like trying to write one or two songs in a very amateurish way. Um, he, even with that folk record, that is really different from all the other folk records of that era. Even if he had only made that record, we would be huge fans of that record, I have no <laughs> doubt. Because his spirit and the way that he attacks those songs and the fun that he's having and the creative way that he's making that record is like nothing else. And it's just infectious and magical. Um, So he was – even when he was completely just in the folk scene doing folk covers, he was already dragging culture to someplace else. He was picking up – he was like grasping this and pulling it somewhere else. And people were like, whoa, what's he done? He's pulling this over here. Let's go follow that. And then from album to album, you know – he keeps doing that. And Blonde on Blonde, I realize, listening to it now, I'm like, oh, you know what? This is where he stopped doing that. Because he started recording this record in New York City the same way that he had done the previous one, Highway 61 Revisited. And he opted instead to go professional. And he was like, let's go to Nashville. Let's use session musicians. Let's make a high-quality record. And that decision... Uh, thinking about it now as a way to justify maybe what I'm feeling from this record, that decision seems to me like Dylan allowing established culture to pull him rather than him pulling culture. Him deciding to make a professional record, let's go to Nashville. That's where they make professional records. Let's get some professional, let's get a session, you know, let's not just like assemble some musicians in New York City that are in the scene. Let's go hire professionals to play this really well and you know, which I don't feel about Nashville Skyline because for Dylan to make, for Dylan to later make Nashville Skyline to make a country record was a really fucking punk rock move for him to make (laughs) at that point in the sixties, hippie counterculture. 
Like that is, again, Dylan grabbing the culture and yanking it to someplace that it didn't want to go. And people, right. once again, being like, what the hell has Dylan done now? Like, oh, and then all these people following him there. Like, oh, well, let's, let's actually country's kind of cool. Like, let's all make country <laughs> records, you know. But Blonde on Blonde to me is Dylan capitulating to what the mainstream established society might want a nice sounding Dylan record to sound like rather than, and it's kind of like, it lacks a little of the creative fire in that way because it opts for professionalism. And I think it shows in the songwriting too. I think there's something, you know, I can't stand, I want you. I can't stand just like a woman. I get, these are like maudlin and even <laughs> sad eyed lady of the lowlands, even though it's a devastatingly amazing song that he's written this for a woman that he loves. And he's like, really doing this devotional act for this woman. It's kind of like a maudlin soppy song that is just not. All right. I could go on with my jerky comment. There's stuff that I love about this. There's out, there's tracks on this record that are among Dylan's greatest tracks. So I'll, you know, there's a lot of positive things I could say too, but that's me that I'm get, trying to get my jerkiness out ahead of time. So, um, <laughs> I could have, uh, actually, uh, flip flop when I was trying to figure out what it'd be between bringing it all back home and this record. Um, cause I love bringing it back home, but, uh, but I went with, uh, I had the record that has the most tracks that mean a lot to me. Uh, like for example, I, I'm not a big fan of the first track, but visions, visions of Johanna is probably my favorite song. Not only in this record, but you know, since I've heard it and I've heard, you know, I've heard different versions of it. I heard, uh, uh, and it's just visions of Johanna and God, I, let me go through these track listings again. This Johanna to me is probably one of the best songs I've ever heard, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's objectively incredible. Yeah, it's like I I can't scientific. <laughs> yeah, I, it's you, you can't get around. I mean, the whole record. I mean, he is Bob Dylan, and this is like <laughs> one of his, Bob Dylan's great records. So it, it, criticism is to be taken with a grain of salt because that's all within the context of this being like a human masterwork among the highest levels of human masterworks in terms of songwriting and rock bands and recordings so yeah vision to johanna i'll totally give you that objectively also, also stuck inside of mobile or subjectively i don't know <laughs> yeah. stuck inside of mobile with the memphis oh. blues again is something that, that strikes me as incredible even uh uh kind of minor track fourth time around i love that song oh, yeah, that's, to me that's that's the song fourth time around is the greatest song on this record and a song that I cannot deny. I'm is so of glad. You, I'm so glad you see that. I've been listening to Yellow Tango's uh, version of it this morning because he did a version of it for that for film. I'm not here, so I'm really glad you see oh, that. That's funny. I didn't even uh, connect that dots. I'm uh, I'm a huge Yellow Tango fan. I have all their stuff. I've yeah. seen them play dozens of times, and um, I'm actually doing a Yellow Tango cover at this thing tomorrow. Oh, nice. Uh, oh, nice. And I was supposed to see them play this week, but they canceled the show. It was outdoors, and they canceled because of rain. But I, I didn't realize that. That kind of makes sense that they would do that song because it almost has a velvet undergroundy kind of droning yeah. creepiness to it mm -hmm. uh, so this is my first uh dylan like album all the way through i've heard you know a few of the songs uh here and there um and i'm kind of i'm kind of split on it i do think it has some really good tracks on there and again i should lead off like this is absolutely not my kind of uh music that i typically get into um but, but I, I mean, I did like Visions of Johanna, Stuck in Mobile, uh, pretty much all the songs you guys mentioned I really liked. But I feel like maybe this album would have hit harder if they 
if he cut the track list down or something <laughs> like I feel like as a as a double album it feels a little overly long kind of overstays its welcome a little bit it has a lot of the they're not like filler tracks but they're just kind of you know uh Jeffrey you had mentioned like I want you just like a woman stuff like that is just kind of like I found myself getting bored and kind of being like all right I how much I still have like 45 minutes left of this <laughs> I'm kind of ready to be done with it but um the songs I did like uh his lyricism stood out in a way uh that I really appreciated like he's he was doing a lot of stuff in uh visions of Johanna that was like a lot of like scene setting that I feel like you don't typically get in a lot of, at least a lot of the music I listen to where it's like the atmosphere he's setting on a lot of stuff feels kind of not like inside jokey, but like, like you had to be there. Like he's describing things as he's understanding it, which I think a lot of people are putting like, Oh, he's being impenetrable and surreal and weird. But I think it's more like accurate reflections of how he's, interpreting stuff like he's not it doesn't seem like it's purposefully cryptic it's just kind of like yeah just go along with it he's like this is what he's saying this is what it is and it's like the imagery is still really good um that i think people uh, you know you have you ever seen walk hard the movie johnson yeah it you know it's it's making fun of musical biopics and stuff like that and he has a bob dylan section where he's more or less singing like residence lyrics or captain beefheart lyrics over like a bob dylan sounding thing and it like it his stuff at least on this never seemed to get that bad or over the top but it's like i see what people are latching on to and being like oh look at this weird lyric here but uh, it it definitely feels more than that than he he's just trying to be weird and cryptic this is also it's so interesting that this is your this is the first full dylan album that you've heard because this is also the album where he really leans into creating the stereotypical Dylan voice of pulling those <laughs> syllables, like ta- that like sort of taffy stretching of syllables, like the yin and yin. <laughs> like that, that is sort of like, this is, the, this is kind of that album. Yeah, um, interesting. Which is, which is not really present on the other records in the way it is on this. Like in this record, it's almost like he's deliberately like, I'm just going to really go into this weird new way of singing that I've developed. <laughs> um, Maybe unconsciously, in the same way you're you're thinking of his lyric creation as also just being like he's just going with his feeling towards the way he experiences these these scenes. Yeah, and that might be him just going with his feel. Like, what does it sound like when I just let myself sing? Like, oh, this is what it sounds like. Cool. So when I, I did have an issue, not so much with the singing, uh, but he did it multiple times. Uh, it was like a specific lyric where he'd say, "So all alone." And like for whatever reason, it bounces around in my head. There's like a really awkward phrasing on it, and it bugged me every time it came up. Um, that, that was kind of the only real, real complaint I had about uh, the the you know, lyrics and the or the singing, at least the delivery. One of the weird things I, I thought that I, I ended up loving about it, and it's not something that I think a lot of people thought about, but um, the drumming on this record. I love the way sixties drum sounds. Like, like I don't, I don't know what it is. It just, it hits me in like a warm spot, and it's all throughout this record. So I don't, I don't know why I, I latched on th- that in particular. But that when the drums come on visions of Johanna, I'm like, this is fucking amazing. Like, like it, and like you said, the atmosphere, the in a lot of these songs, like, uh, 
you know, I'm not a big fan of I Want You, like you guys said, but I even really like Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat a lot. Oh, yeah, that's a great that's a great one on here. It's, um, sure. Yeah, and um, Most Likely to Go Your Way, that's a devastating song to me. Um, and, and learning about Saturday Lady of the Lowlands is sort of um, just the story behind it, singing for his future wife, Sarah, like, it's it's an it's a long song. It takes up you know the fourth the fourth side of the Dylan record, and um, I I think that's also like you said devastating. I actually love that song though. So maybe different there. It means it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But it, there's so many great tracks in this. I find it hard hard to ignore in, uh, in terms of '60s records. But again, my favorite Dylan song is actually Desolation Row. So you know. Yeah. Well, I I'll, I love that one. The length. It's, it's not the length of Sad-Eyed Lady that I object to. I, you know, it, I, I think Desolation Row is incredible. And I'd be so – I feel like we should, you know, a whole series of podcasts where each episode is just Ryan giving us impressions of listening through, you know, picking a different Dylan record. Because <laughs> now I'm just so curious, having this record as your introduction, what would mm. Ryan think if we did a deep dive into bringing it all back home nice. or yeah. into, uh, into John Wesley Harding or into the freewheeling Bob Dylan? or into another side of Bob Dylan or, <laughs> you know, the first album oh, or, yeah. you know, Highway 61 revisited or, you know, I mean, God, every 60s Dylan album, except this one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I, but I, I, I think it's a, it's similarly, I, and I know, you know, people are just gonna, I, I like letting out these shocking opinions just to be controversial, but I don't like blood on the tracks is another oh, wow. Dylan record that, people consider to be like among like the top three Dylan records. I'm like, no way that wouldn't make it into my top 15 or whatever. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not a big fan of desire either, yeah. which is another one. People are always like blonde on blonde, blow on the tracks and desire. And those are like three of like the least, com- obviously they all have absolutely incredible songs that yeah. are like better than anything anybody has ever done ever. But there's um, there, maybe there's just something about, the different facets, Dylan being a very multifaceted artist, mm-hmm. certain facets that call to me more and other facets that call to other people more, but there's enough insanely rich, powerful facets that it calls to everybody in the world in some way. Cause he's like one of the top regarded artists. Uh, although there's plenty of very famous, you know, I don't give a flying hoot about you too, even though that could be <laughs> people. Uh, so the popularity in and of itself is not necessarily indicative that it's truly great. Yeah. But I mean, Dylan is truly great. Like it's just, it, it seems pretty undeniable. Oh yeah. And I, 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 at least to like a, a white guitar playing dude like me, like, of course I think Dylan is great, but uh, <laughs> for, you know, that's uh, there you, there you have it. I, uh, yeah. Dylan's just someone that, I mean, I have posters on the wall. <laughs> you know, like in my basement down here of Dylan. Then uh, I've seen him live, which is kind of disappointing to see him live because he's just there. He's not. He's not. He seems somewhere else the whole time. Um, but uh, I, 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 I challenge anyone to say that he's at least not influential in the way we listen to music nowadays. Um, uh, to anyone. Uh, but uh. Ryan, I'm glad you found something to like about it because yeah. I, I was a uh, I was a little worried giving this to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I I, yeah. I enjoyed sitting down and listening to it. I obviously had tracks I liked more than other ones, uh, and I like stepping outside of my comfort zone 
Um, but I'll, I mean, I'll do the the Bob Dylan 60s exploration <laughs> as long as I can also bring something completely impenetrable for you guys to listen to. <laughs> well, uh, I think back, um, Chris and I did an episode a while ago called like The Gauntlet, which was like we both try to bring our most impenetrable albums and... I worked really hard to try to break Chris's brain as much as I could to for the music I listened to. Yeah. And it was, it was fun. Yeah, it was a fun one. Uh, but uh, Jeff, I cannot thank you enough for being on this, uh, on this podcast with us. I had such a great time. Oh, good. Are we wrapping up there? I mean, yeah. I could talk. I, oh, I have so oh, much yeah. more to say about Blonde on Blonde. Oh, yeah, but yeah I, please, but please I, I say more. Please, please say more. I'd love to hear more. There's a talk. danger for me. I say yes to these things. And then I'm like, it's not that I don't want to do it. It's just that I want to do it so much. I just know that I can talk all day about records and I've got other work to do. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I was, uh, yeah, <laughs> I was, I, was I, do like, want to, I, I want to say a couple other things. Sure. Uh, uh, okay. We mentioned um, fourth time around. Yeah. At, which to me, yeah, like I, this is that to me is like the, the, the high watermark of this album. Yeah. And you had also picked that out as one of your favorite tracks. And um, I'm curious what that song did for Ryan first of all, but I have a couple other things to say about it. Yeah. But Ryan, what did that one yeah. stick out for you at all? I, that one was another one of my favorite ones. Like one I wouldn't cut if I was going through and, you know, cutting this thing down to more manageable length. Um, I mean, to me, that's which also is, which hilarious. I like, I like long <laughs> albums, yeah. but um, there, there were a lot of tracks on here. Uh, you know, some of the, just the more uh, Jeff, what did you say? Maudlin tracks. I'm not huge on like a lot of like blues rock either. So I'd probably cut a lot of those. Um, I found when I was, you know, reading the lyrics and looking through stuff that I don't know, maybe I I started to feel a little bit like Dylan in getting frustrated with people trying to interpret my lyrics and put history to it. So it's like I would read the lyrics like, oh, that was great. And then, you know, you're on Genius or whatever, and you scroll down to like, what does this song mean? And you get, you know, a thesis about like what Dylan was doing and who he was dating. And I was like, this makes the song less interesting. Like <laughs> I understand his hesitation to, you know, explain his stuff and do things like that. So I, I felt like I got a lot more out of this the less I knew about what was going on with Dylan. Because it's like I really liked I liked this this one and kind of it's more like it, it was a little bit more like storytelling, kind of setting a scene um, in like a really interesting way. Uh but yeah, then scrolling down to the bottom and be like, oh, it's probably this. I was like, eh, I don't care about that. I like it more as kind of an abstract, this can apply to, you know, this character. You can find something in your life about it and less so like Bob Dylan singing about his girlfriend, even though he was married. It's like, <laughs> eh, I don't care so much about that. I, uh, uh, but I yeah, that's kind of how I felt overall on this album is like, don't tell me so much about Bob Dylan and I'll enjoy this more because i can put more of my understandings and my i guess myself into it what, what this showcases bob dylan with that song is how it's also very funny also very devastating at the same time like i, I laughed like the first time i heard this song talking about you know piece of gum and then having to spit it out later after you gave it to her i uh mm. i that he was a bunch through a lot of this record he's He's saying very funny things, but also in the next line, he can just destroy you the way he said that after that. So I was, um, the fourth time around, like thinking about how it is probably my favorite song off Blonde on Blonde. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I have not, uh, you know, I was about to launch into my whole, um, detailed interpretation of, uh, what this song is about, according to me. But, um, 
I would hearing Ryan's comment that like, uh, well, duh, of course there must be an internet full of jackasses like myself <laughs> who think they who think they can explain what a Dylan song is about. So no, I, I actually I'd be interested in hearing what she's had other, to say about I, it. I, you know, I'm sure there's probably a hundred people that have already have the same interpretation of it that I have, and I'm not making any new explorations here because I haven't I haven't looked into what the what the interpretations on the internet are. Yeah. So there's probably people that have already said exactly what I'm going to say. And, um, but the, it seems to me that this song is obviously a reference to the Beatles. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. And I don't know if that's something that you guys think, if that was one of the interpretations that was seen, but the, from the first time I heard this song, I was like, Oh, he's like rewriting Norwegian wood. It's very similar <laughs> to the Beatles Norwegian wood that came out, you know, the year prior to this. Mm-hmm. But what he's done here, it seems to me, is he's putting the Beatles, he's, this is like him dissing the Beatles because he's like, Norwegian Wood was one of the first times the Beatles tried to write like a story type narrative that was inspired by, at, you know, at the point where the Beatles are writing that, they're aware of Dylan and they're starting to be inspired by him. And it's sort of Dylan being like, look, I can do you guys better than you can do me. Like, I'm, if I wrote Norwegian Wood, it would be like this, motherfuckers. Like, <laughs> fucking demolish the floor with you. Like, don't even come close to me. Like, I see you trying to, like, sniff up and, like, do some of what I'm doing. But, like, listen, be- like, you're the freaking Beatles. But step off. I'm Bob Dylan. And I'm, like, I'm leagues ahead of you little, you little pikers. Um, so I feel like this is, like, the woman in the song is essentially the Beatles in my interpretation <laughs> of this and in his demonstration of what he would do if he wrote that kind of song, which is so much on this whole other level from what the Beatles were capable of doing with Norwegian wood. And yet the interaction between him and this woman is also in my own interpretation of what's going on. Uh, and maybe other people have this interpretation too. I don't know how off the wall or outrageous this seems, but it seems like the situation is that this woman has given Dylan a blowjob, and he's like about it's like some groupie or some woman that he doesn't have a very intense relationship with similar to the Beatles, like just worshiping, you know, turning to Dylan as an object of worship and giving him their affection and then hoping that he will return that affection. And she says, well, some, you know, everybody must give something back for something they get like suggesting like maybe now it's time for him to make her come before he leaves her apartment. Um, and, what he does instead as a complete insult is be like, Oh, you want something back? Here's a piece of gum. Uh, <laughs> like, clear, clear your mouth out after you've had me in your mouth, which is essentially him saying to the Beatles, get me out of your mouth. Like stop, uh, you know, both stop worshiping me and also like clear this, clear the Dylan out. That's in your mouth, out of your mouth. You want something from me? What I'm going to give you is advice to like step off and, uh, <laughs> you know, and so that's why the woman like breaks down and, you know, he gives her the piece of the gum and she responds with this breakdown, which is both the woman who has just pleasured him and the Beatles worshiping him and wanting him to worship them. Um, and both of the woman and the Beatles are being like rejected because he's just too arrogant to do that. But then in the song, he sort of leaves the house and then realizes, Oh wait, there are things here that would be interesting for me to take. Like he's not, <laughs> he realizes that like the Beatles have some elements that he can take from, Mm -hmm. um, and his kind of magpie taking bits of this and here and there. 
So he does go back in because he's like got some. He he. So he goes back into the house, um, and he takes some stuff. Um, Shirt, rum, that sort of thing. Yeah, and he goes through her drawer and he says, <laughs> "I filled up my shoe, and I brought them to you," which is like, he's like, you know what? I did realize that there are some stuff from the Beatles that I could take, such as the Norwegian wood sort of sounds that I'm using in this song, and I'm giving them to you, the listeners. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, there's some stuff here worth taking. But his final warning in the song is like, I never asked for your crutch, now don't ask for mine. Um, he's like, I don't need this stuff from you. Like, uh, it's, there's stuff that's worth taking and incorporating into my music, but I'd be fine without it. Like, don't, don't sweat me, because like, you need me more than I need you. Um, in relation to both the Beatles and to his like little fling with this woman. So I don't know if that's, if that Jeffrey Lewis interpretation is like the common interpretation of the song, but that's my interpretation of it. That's as amazing. far as I know, your interpretation is more expanded and, <laughs> you know, actually like exploring the metaphor more than the people online have done. I think people are like, yeah, that last line about the crutch, that's probably about the Beatles. And then the rest was like, he had a girlfriend around this time, so it was probably that's what the song's about. Yeah, but I I love the uh, I love your I think, I think your expanded interpretation is definitely better. <laughs> and before we get out of here, we, yeah, uh, I'll also bring in since we're talking about Dylan and girlfriends, and because there's just been this accusation against Dylan, yeah, that this woman claims that when she was 12 years old, mm -hmm. right around the time when this album was being written, and you know, in '65, and this album is his '66 record, um. We can't help but hear this record somewhat through the filter of like, there's this new sense yeah. just very recently as of the recording of this podcast, suddenly after this record was already selected as what we were doing on this mm -hmm. podcast, mm -hmm. um, suddenly the spotlight is on Dylan in this moment as like, oh, was he being a, is he like a, an actual immoral, like sleazy, you know, Im, you know, vicious character? Is the person who made this record a person that would be, you know, a pedophile yeah. or a, um, yeah. you know, an abuser in a way that nobody could morally stand behind in his, as far as his personal life. Um, and that's a really weird juxtaposition with yeah. an album that contains his most devoted work, you know, the fact that Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands written to the woman that he was about to marry. I mean, he's 24 years old and marrying this woman that he's very devoted to. Yeah. Um, in the phase in which this album is made. Um, so it's, yeah, there's, there's one experience of listening to this record, which is like just the Dylan that I'd already thought of. And then there's this other like darker shadow cast on it, which is like, is it possible that he was also this other, like did his arrogance at this period in his life extend to exploring a completely immoral relationship or not. I mean, this is not, we, there's no, that whole court case has yet to happen. So yeah. the, the, what the accusation actually is and the facts of the case, which have already been rebutted by Dylan's lawyers saying that he yeah. wasn't in that place at that time. And, you and know, even looking at our schedules, they're saying that it wasn't possible, but again, we don't know everything about the case. So we can't really say one way or the other, if we can't defend it or, you know, rebut it and without knowing. Uh, and yeah, it did color my, thoughts on this because Dylan was arrogant as fuck at this time like there's no denying that even with the way he's seeing it, I think it was just showing how fucking awesome he was at writing songs but uh 
But uh, again, it it was interesting to see in that light. You know, uh, yeah, I, I think it does put kind of an interesting lens on it, especially when you're listening to stuff like uh, "One of Us Must Know." You've got the line. I didn't realize how young you were, <laughs> which is kind of like, ooh. Yeah, but then you yeah. can kind of look at Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, and it's, you know, this big, long, epic, over 11-minute long song of, you know, devotion to one person. But with this over it uh, and potentially exploring, uh, you know, other relationships and, you know, all that is like, is it, is he actually feeling this or is it more of a performative thing? Like, no, look, I'm not doing this crazy immoral stuff. I, I love you. Obviously I wrote an 11 minute long song about you or can both exist at the same time. Yeah. I don't know. I but think there's does. something also not, you know, obviously not to excuse the crimes of say somebody like Charles Manson, mm-hmm. who's a whole other, you know, I listen to Manson's music too. Like, I don't <laughs> care the, the immoralities or actually, you know, I listen to plenty of music made by people who've done horrible things. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, the, you know, that's a whole other topic that obviously that we could talk about and that everybody in the world has been talking about for, you know, it's like a very modern thing to mm-hmm. explore. Um, but there was something going on in the sixties that was specifically transgressive against all previous social norms, which included things that right now we take for granted as acceptable, such as homosexuality and psychedelic drugs, for instance. Um, Allen Ginsberg, who was hanging out with Dylan during the period when this record was made uh, and earlier, you know, like they were buddies on the, the idea of being a gay man, an openly gay man, as Ginsberg was, was outrageous to an extent that it's a little hard for us to really wrap our heads around now. Yeah. Like what, what Ginsburg was openly doing with his life and his, you know, and his sex life was just beyond the pale for the establishment of society. He was doing, you know, that was unacceptable, completely outrageously unacceptable. The way that say a college student dropping out and taking acid or, you know, mescaline, or heroin, or, you know, people were really put going, like, it's hard for us right now with things like drugs, and even extramarital sex, sex before marriage at all, or, you know, anything, like, these people were doing things that were 100% transgressive. Right. Right now, with the filter of history, we look back and we're like, oh, some of those transgressive things are no longer transgressive to us. We see them as fine and moral and other things we still see as immoral and transgressive. But in the heat of the sixties, I am completely willing to believe that that dividing line between what was too transgressive and what was on the acceptable side of transgressive. I don't think that line existed. I think people were just throwing everything out of the window and being like, society is insane. The Vietnam war is insane. World war two is insane anything that has to do with the regular established society is insane. So the only sane response is to go to all of the corners that have not been colonized by that establishment and see if there's another kind of sanity we can find in hedonism, in sex, in homosexuality, in uh, transgressive drug use or, or, you know, anything other than what is accepted and established. So 
even though right now we can look back and say we'll pick and choose which of those things we still find moral and acceptable. You know, there's stories that there's things that, that Lou Reed did, or there's things that there's things that a lot of people did that are we would consider reprehensible or unappealing at the very least now. And there's mm-hmm. other things they did that were just as reprehensible and unappealing then that now we look at and we're like, oh that's cool. <laughs> you know, but we are filtering it in a way from our perspective that like has the benefit of a certain amount of filtration. That is a really interesting way to look at that. I didn't, I didn't know that deep into it. And yeah, that's, that illuminates a lot for me actually. So that's a good, that's, that's actually a great point to leave off. Um, so, that's a whole lot. I mean, we can talk about that for another two hours too, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll bow out do some other stuff, but I, I, uh, unless you guys want, you know, want to wrap up in some way. Well, uh, Jeff, I wanted to mention the. I wanted to thank you so much for being on here. I know uh, we kept you longer than you wanted, but uh, honestly, I could have let you talk for a couple hours if I if I needed you to. Um, but uh, it's been thrilling to have you on. And if you ever want to do it again, let us know. We we glad to bring you on for this. I would do this all day, every day, but then I would starve to death and never make any money. Like this is a, it's not that it's unappealing, it's that it's too appealing. So I guess why well, I got to stay away. But I think you guys are doing a great thing. It's really interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I like the, this podcast stuff that I've, that I've heard in your archives. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, that uh, means a lot. So uh, that was Record Night uh, with Jeffrey Lewis, and uh, we'll see you guys later. All right. And that was our uh, conversation with Jeffrey Lewis. That was a, a great conversation, man. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah, but uh, I was I love having guests on here to kind of give us new insight and new just new perspectives on stuff. Yeah, you know, like a lot of things I didn't think about or things that you know, he had a lot of insight on things and it was great. It was yeah. A great conversation. <laughs> I'm still I'm still stoked about it. but um after Jeff and us disconnected, we realized we didn't plug anything for him. Oh yeah. But so, we've got he does have some stuff mm-hmm. coming up. Uh, one that I believe is already out, yeah. uh, which is the Jeffrey Lewis and Peter Stampful Band have an album called Both Ways, uh, which I guess is a lost double album from 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jeff has teamed up with Peter Stampful, who's 82 years old, a freak folk veteran uh, from New York City cult bands, the Holy Modal Rounders and the Fugs. And then this will be the third album that uh, Jeffrey and Peter have made in the past 10 years. And they're calling it a double a- double album magnum opus of wonderful weirdness. And you can find that at uh, Jeffrey Lewis's Bandcamp, which is jeffreylewis.bandcamp.com. Jeffrey with two Fs, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. L E W I S. Yeah, he has all. He has all his stuff on there. Um, he has, in fact, uh, in twenty, uh, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, he released two, um, two like uh, home recordings called twenty nineteen and twenty twenty, which are just record songs he wrote and they recorded on his computer, and you can buy oh, those cool. too. Yeah, and uh, of course you can also buy all his records. But do you know that he is going to be reissuing his first seven? He's just waiting to get uh, ETA from the press plant. Oh nice! Yeah. Oh gosh! Yeah. Who knows how long? There, that's there was some be. stuff I couldn't find, man. Like I have most of the stuff that is available on vinyl, on vinyl, but I'm looking forward to be able to get a whole like twelve crash songs and stuff like that that he has that have been long out of print. So that's oh ex- yeah, that'll be cool. It's exciting, but um, I think that's it. Yeah.
Well, shit going on, pal. <laughs> well, once again, I want to thank Jeffrey Lewis oh, for yeah. being on here. Uh, yeah, that Jeff, was just amazing. It, it was an incredible conversation. I mean, that, like, like he was so down on the concept, which are like, like, like he, you know, whenever we have guests, we like them to play the game. He played the game all the way. It was mm-hmm. great. Yeah, it's clear he likes talking about uh, records and music. It's something he's obviously little, very passionate about. I think we kept a little longer than he wanted to be kept, but but you know he has a lot to say. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, what's up? What's going on, pal? Oh yeah, uh, me and a friend of mine do the music for this podcast. Um, so if you like the intro or you like this outro, uh, our band is called Smell. Uh, you can find us at smell.bandcamp.com. Uh, we've got two little EPs on there that are both pay what you want, but that also means free. Uh, so feel free to check them out, download them, listen to them, whatever you want to do. Yeah. How about yourself? I what do you got going on. I do a we could podcast on movies that don't suck and some that do. Uh, we do two movies, new movies a week. Um, I don't know when. I mean, this will be coming out soon, but. Yeah, it's uh, movies that don't suck and something they do. We're found everywhere you find uh, Record Night. And uh, don't forget, next week we are doing Guilty Pleasures. The next episode we're doing, doing Guilty Pleasures. So the one after Correct. this one will be, uh, you get to hear us talk about the shameful things we like. So. Yeah. <laughs> or the shameful things we listen to that we're, we don't know if we like, but we listen to them enough that yeah, probably believe you yeah, like it'd them. Be, yeah. it'd, be, it'd be like someone who watches wrestling and makes fun of it. But then they go to an event and they're like, do I really like wrestling? Or do, do oh, I really, yeah. like, ironically, do I actually like it, you know? Re- wrestling's fun, man. Like, <laughs> as a uh, as someone who's older now, um, like, watching it for, like, the performance of it. Yeah. Like, it's it's almost kind of like watching, like, a movie or something where you're like, oh, hey, that, that person's a really good actor. But you wouldn't think that when you're a kid. You'd think, like, oh, that guy's a real person. Yeah. All right, well, <laughs> we'll get into this next time. Sorry, we'll, dude, we'll get you into wrestling at some point. <laughs> All right, uh, well, uh, I'm Chris. And I'm Ryan. And that was Reckon Night. Thanks for listening. See you next time.